Welcome back everyone. Today we're going to be taking a look at my four-factor dividend growth portfolio. You can see the actual portfolio here on M1 Finance. The portfolio currently has a market value of a little bit more than $2,000. So while it isn't a big portfolio, it does give me the opportunity to test my strategy with real money. I came up with the idea for this portfolio as I studied Schwab's US Dividend Equity Fund, SCHD. It's one of the most popular dividend ETFs traded on the US market. And a lot of dividend investors on YouTube have covered this fund. So you're probably very familiar with it. But I haven't seen a lot of YouTube videos that talk about ICHD, dig deeper into its underlying index, the Dow Jones US Dividend 100. And to understand and really appreciate how this fund works, you have to know its underlying index and the mechanics that go into the stock selection process. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In a nutshell, the index starts with a universe of about 3,000 unique companies, and then it narrows down this list to just the top 100, following a rules-based approach. So as I was reviewing SCHD's underlying index, and the stock selection process it follows, I really liked one of the parts in the process. And these were the four factors that are used to rank the final handful of stocks and identify constituent stocks that will be included in the ETF. Those factors are the free cash flow to total debt ratio, the return on equity, the IAD yield, or the forward dividend yield, and the five-year dividend growth rate. I like this four-factor process so much, I decided to borrow it, but I wanted to make it my own. So while I borrowed the process, I applied it to my own universe of dividend growth stocks, and I also made one minor adjustment. I replaced the return on equity with the return on capital. While both metrics measure profitability on shareholder equity, the return on capital also includes debt into the equation. Therefore, I believe it's a stronger and more favorable metric to use. In late October of last year, I ran this stock screening process on the 170 dividend growth stocks in my universe, and I selected the top 30 stocks to be included in this portfolio. I also borrowed the asset allocation methodology of the Dow Jones US Dividend 100 Index that uses a float-adjusted market cap-based allocation with a maximum cap to any individual stock, because my portfolio only holds 30 stocks opposed to 100 stocks in the Dow Jones Index. I decided to set my own allocation cap. The maximum allocation to any individual stock I selected was 6.67%, which was twice the equal weight allocation. So once I had my top 30 holdings, and the asset allocation all set, it was time to implement this portfolio, and I launched it on November 1st of 2022. Here is a snapshot of the actual portfolio as of January 9th, 2023. It shows all of the positions, the share count, the market value, the annual dividend, the current allocation, and the target allocation. I'll leave a link to this article in the description below if you want to browse this table on your own time. Let's talk about the performance results. December was a pretty rough month for most equities, and dividend stocks were no exception. My portfolio finished the month with a loss of 5.48%, and while this was unfavorable, it was better than the S&P 500 total return. The S&P 500 finished the month with a loss of 5.76%, which means my portfolio generated 0.28% of alpha. And while the alpha generated in December was modest, it does build on the alpha that was generated in November, which was pretty substantial, at 7.66%. In November, my portfolio was up 13.25%, versus a return of 5.59% for the S&P 500. And in December, it added 0.28% more of alpha. 
So the combined return for November and December for my portfolio is 7.04% versus a loss of 0.49% for the S&P 500, which means the portfolio is 7.53% ahead of the S&P. So even though the portfolio was up 7.66% at the end of November and it beat the S&P in December as well, the long-term alpha has shrunk a little bit because long-term returns have a compounding effect. January 2023 has started off on a bright note. Through January 9th, my portfolio has a gain of 3.85%, compared to a gain of just 1.42% for the S&P 500. That's an additional 2.44% of alpha. If we combine this partial January return with the returns from November and December, the long-term alpha increases from 7.53% to 10.25%. My article was published two days ago, and over the past two days, the return for my portfolio has jumped from 3.85% to 5.68%. Now the S&P 500 has gone up as well, to 3.44%, and the portfolio has lost a little bit of alpha, falling from 2.44% to just 2.24%. On a cumulative basis, the alpha has shrunk from 10.25% to 10.19%, which is still a very healthy lead for my portfolio. Let's jump back a little bit and take a look at the individual returns for all of the holdings in December. The seven largest positions that all started with an allocation of 6.67% performed pretty well in December. The best stock was Merck that was up 1.41%. And I also saw a positive return from AbbVie that was up 0.27%. These two holdings were the primary drivers of Alpha in December. Home Depot and MasterCard also beat the S&P 500 by a pretty wide margin, both losing about 2.5% during the month. Visa outpaced the S&P 500 by about 1.5%, falling 4.26% in December. And the two worst positions from the top 7 holdings were ASML Holdings and Taiwan Semiconductor, falling 10.15% and 9.71% respectively. If we look a little further down the asset allocation list, the portfolio had a pretty big loss from Accenture that fell 11.33%. Texas Instruments and UPS also didn't do so well, falling more than 8% during the month. We had a pretty good return from Lockheed Martin that was up 0.27%, and a pretty lousy month for ADP that was down more than 9%. BlackRock performed pretty decent, only falling 35 basis points. Applied Materials and Infosys fell more than 11%, and LAM Research fell more than 10%. Tira was the worst performing holding, falling 11.75%. And Ferguson PLC was the best performer, up 8.95% during the month. Expeditors International of Washington also posted a double-digit loss. We had a flat month for Garmin, and a pretty sizable loss for Rollins. The average return for all 30 holdings in December was minus 5.75%, and the portfolio return, based on my target asset allocation, was minus 5.48%. So yet again, we see a favorable return from my target allocation, compared to an equal weight target allocation. If we break up the portfolio by top X number of stocks, we can see what impact the strategic target allocation has on the portfolio. The top 7 holdings started out with a 46.69% allocation in the portfolio, and in December, their average return was minus 3.91%, which was much better than the S&P 500. And because these seven holdings collectively performed better than the S&P, the portfolio was able to generate alpha. When we look at the average return for the top 10 holdings, it's minus 5.13%, meaning that positions 8, 9, and 10 in the asset allocation table performed pretty poorly in December and drove the average return for the top 10 stocks much lower than the top 7 stocks. As you can see from this table, the top 20 holdings in the portfolio make up a little more than 94% of the entire portfolio, which means the bottom 10 holdings don't play a major role on the overall portfolio return. When I combine the returns for November and December, you can see that the top 7 holdings are all performing very well. 4 of the top 7 holdings have double-digit returns over this 2-month period. The best return comes from Taiwan Semiconductor, that is up 21.73%. ASML Holdings is also looking pretty strong, up 16.01%. 
Both of these stocks performed very well in November, and even though both posted pretty large losses in December, they are still up quite a bit since inception. The two other positions that have double-digit gains are AbbVie and Merck, two of the better performers in December. Home Depot is up a little bit more than 7%, and MasterCard is just shy of a 6% return, with Visa being the poorest performing stock out of the top 7, with a gain of 0.52%. If I scroll further down to look at positions 8, 9, and 10, we can see a pretty modest gain from Cisco, up 4.87%, a pretty poor showing from Accenture that is down 6.01%, and a modest gain from Texas Instruments, up 2.86%. Accenture has been the worst stock in this portfolio thus far, because it started with a pretty hefty allocation of 6.35%, and it's down 6.01% thus far. It's not the biggest loser in the portfolio, but it has the biggest impact from all the losers. If I keep scrolling down, we can see another loss came from ADP that is down 0.71%, and Infosys is down 3.84%. But we do have double-digit gains from BlackRock that is up 10.46%, and Applied Materials that is up 10.56%. KLA Corporation is the second best performer in the portfolio, up 19.56%. Then we have two more losers, Paychex that is down 1.67% and Fastnail that is down 2.08%. Ferguson PLC, the best performer in December, is up 16.89% over November and December. We also have a pretty sizable gain from Best Buy that is up 18.51%. And the worst stock in the portfolio in terms of total loss is Rollins that is down 12.89%. But it also happens to be the smallest position and started with an allocation of just 0.37%, so it doesn't play a major role on the overall portfolio return. The portfolio currently has a dividend yield of just 2.15%, and the projected dividend income over the next 12 months is $43.62. This figure is up from $43.31 when I first started this portfolio in November. The change is driven by dividend increases and dividend reinvestment. I received a whopping $2.99 of dividends in December, and the total amount of dividends received in 2022 was $6.08. Now I did receive some dividends in this account in October, prior to starting this portfolio, from the prior asset allocation. So the $6.08 is not a true reflection of the 4-factor dividend growth portfolio. The portfolio has already paid $1.56 in dividends in January, and I'm actually expecting to receive $3.46 from this portfolio this month. So as you can see the dividend stream from this portfolio is pretty small, but I think it's pretty decent from a $2,000 portfolio that has a focus on dividend growth. I'm not adding any more capital to this portfolio, so it'll be pretty interesting to see the organic dividend growth from dividend increases and dividend reinvestment. Now come November of this year, I will run the stock screening process again and select the top 30 stocks to include in the portfolio for next year. So that might shake up the dividend yield and dividend growth going forward, but I'll deal with that when we get there. I've also been tracking the relationship of the current allocation versus the target allocation for each of the positions in this portfolio. I use this spreadsheet to show me which position is the most underweight right now and I base my dividend reinvestment on the most underweight position to try to bring the portfolio back in line with its target allocation. The overall absolute portfolio drift is 4.80%, which is up a little bit from where it was in December, but it's still a pretty small number. Since the portfolio doesn't really generate too much in dividends, it'll be pretty difficult to keep it on target with just dividend reinvestment. My goals for this portfolio are to generate long-term alpha over the S&P 500 and to provide a growing passive dividend income stream.